Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 71, Katie Hicks, Expanding Peña Rodriguez to Protect Criminal Defendants from Explicit Gender Animus. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today, our guest is Katie Hicks. Katie is a law student at the University of Arkansas School of Law and the incoming editor-in-chief of the Arkansas Law Review. Our podcast today specifically features Katie's new paper, Expanding Peña Rodriguez to Protect Criminal Defendants from Explicit Gender Animus. And as the title implies, Katie's paper provides a fascinating examination of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado, which held that Federal Rule of Evidence 606B does not prohibit a juror from testifying that racial animus infected the deliberation room. Now, as many of our listeners likely know, following the Peña-Rodriguez decision, there immediately emerged the question of whether it should be expanded to combat other forms of animus in the deliberation room. Katie enters this debate by insisting that, indeed, as a next step, the Supreme Court should expand Peña-Rodriguez and remove Rule 606B protection from statements of explicit gender animus in the deliberation room. As you'll hear in our discussion, though, Katie believes that this move is not a radical shift solely justified by normative aims, but instead constitutes the next iteration of a long-standing practice or trend in American law. To use her words, quote, a basic outlay of American history demonstrates that where there is no tolerance for race-based discrimination, there is also no room for the existence of gender-based discrimination. In line with her paper. My conversation with Katie today begins with an historical review of the origins of the no impeachment rule, before we focus, in particular, on its post-Pena Rodriguez future. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So your paper begins by taking a close look at a major legitimating component of adjudication and really jury decision-making as a whole. And that is, of course, Rule 606B, otherwise known as the No Impeachment Rule. And your research found that the No Impeachment Rule actually has quite a long history. So let's start there, Katie. Tell us first about the No Impeachment Rule's origins. Okay, so it really originates back in English common law. So before 1785, there really wasn't any hesitation at all about admitting post-trial juror testimony, regardless of the reason courts really had no reservation about jurors impeaching their own verdicts. However, this all changed in 1785 in a case called Vase versus Delaval, in which the jurors decided to convict the defendant after flipping a coin. And so Lord Mansfield recognized that this was certainly misconduct, but he opined that the court should not gain knowledge of impropriety through jurors' testimony. 
Great. And we all now know uh, that the no impeachment rule eventually crossed the Atlantic and found a home here in the United States. Right. But you actually found that there was quite a bit of initial uncertainty surrounding its adoption in America. So how did the Mansfield rule that you just described fare initially in the U.S.? Right. So we have it come over in the United States and in our earliest courts, we see the Mansfield rule being applied, but we also see a lot of hesitancy surrounding it because courts recognize that this is basically the only rule that we have regarding post-trial juror testimony, but it's so rigid and so expansive and courts are hesitant to just adopt it in its expansive form because it offered no room for admission of any testimony in any circumstance. And so the first crack in this regime happens in 1851 in a case called United States versus Reed. And this case is really important because it's how the doctrine develops over hundreds of years is this uncertainty because courts want to protect the finality of a jury's verdict, and they want jurors to feel free during deliberations to say whatever they want to say. But this was the first time that the United States Supreme Court recognized that there might be instances in which the Mansfield rule should yield in the interest of these principles that our criminal justice system was founded on. So in that case, the court used the language, the plainest principles of justice, and we want the Mansfield rule to yield when it would violate those principles of justice. And so that's language that will be woven throughout the doctrine for the next couple hundred years. Great. And most of our listeners will likely be familiar with the no impeachment rules modern form, what eventually came of this whole process, which was, of course, Federal Rule of Evidence 606B. So how did Rule 606 come to be codified? Because I know that there was a lot of involvement from both the House and Senate in that process. So from 1851 in United States versus Reed until the first draft of the Federal Rule of Evidence 606B that would take place in 1969, there really was a lot of uncertainty in both state courts and federal courts nationwide. The Iowa Supreme Court came out with a new rule which represented a second train of thought that was much different from the Mansfield Rule, which became known as the Iowa Rule. And that rule differentiated between overt acts of a third party or of a juror and the mental processes of a juror. So juror testimony to impeach the verdict was admissible where there were overt acts or a third party actor, but they weren't admissible where there was improper conduct related to a juror's mental processes. So the idea was that overt acts or a third party's action could either be proven or disproven by other jurors' testimony. But the mental processes of one juror can't be proven or disproven, so it would be inadmissible. In Massachusetts, their Supreme Court held that anything that happened inside the four walls of the jury's deliberation room would not be admissible because this would be the black box, which should be cloaked in secrecy. But if there was any improper conduct by juror or a third party actor, if it was outside the four walls, then that would certainly be admissible. So we have these splits among state Supreme Courts, among federal circuit courts. And so the 1969 draft of the Federal Rules of Evidence was really important because it sort of codified 
everything that we had had over the past many decades. And so the Standing Committee on the Rules of Practice and Procedure issued their first draft in 1969, and it was basically just adopting the Iowa rule. So it recognized the difference between overt acts and the mental processes of juries, and jurors' mental processes were not admissible post-conviction to impeach a verdict. The committee rejected the Mansfield rule outright because they said that it was a gross oversimplification and it was so expansive and provided no room for any extreme circumstance. And so to 6B, it was modifying other rules within the federal rules of evidence. And so Rule 606B largely remained the codification of the Iowa rule that we saw in 1969. However, There were some legislators and the Justice Department that wanted a more rigid version of Rule 606B, more similar to the Mansfield Rule. And so after some extensive lobbying efforts, there was a third draft that was presented to Congress later the same year in 1971 that only allowed affidavits regarding prejudicial extraneous information by third parties. So it was closer to the Mansfield rule and more stringent and more expansive than what we saw with the Iowa rule. Great. So thanks for that recounting of the history. That's quite in-depth and helps build to kind of the central argument in your note. Before we jump into the Peña-Rodriguez decision itself, which of course features prominently in your paper, Remind us, just to be clear, of the key exceptions to Rule 606B prior to the Peña-Rodriguez decision. And that is to say, what could jurors testify about before Peña-Rodriguez came before the court? Right. So there were three primary exceptions in Rule 606B that Congress in these drafts allowed. And so first was the extraneous prejudicial information, which we saw that in Maddox versus United States many decades before. And so it was, again, that same theme of where there's a bad actor that's a third party and not a juror, then we'll allow post-trial juror testimony to expose that. If there is an outside influence that improperly bore on one of the jurors, then that also could be exposed. And then the third exception was where there was a clerical error and the jurors simply put that a defendant was guilty when actually they had voted for him to be innocent or something like that, then that could be exposed through the testimony. Great. So now that we've unpacked Rule 606B and its historical roots, I want to move to the Peña-Rodriguez case itself and perhaps explore its implications. So first things first, what exactly was that issue in Peña-Rodriguez? So in Peña-Rodriguez versus Colorado, there was a man, Miguel Peña-Rodriguez, and he was charged in Colorado with attempted sexual assault on a child, unlawful sexual contact, and harassment. And there was a very weak case against him. The prosecution offered no physical evidence against him, and the defense presented an alibi witness that actually placed him elsewhere at the incident in question. But nevertheless, the jury convicted him. And so after his conviction, two jurors approached the defense counsel and told them that there was one juror who had come to be known as Juror H.C. throughout the procedural history, had made explicit statements of racial bias during the deliberations, and that those statements had led to the jury's conviction of Mr. Pena Rodriguez. 
And although there were several statements made, the gist of all of them was that because he was a Hispanic man, he was certainly guilty. And that's what his guilt was founded on. And how did the Supreme Court ultimately rule in the case? So the Supreme Court in spring of 2017 opined that where there are expressed statements of racial animus during jury deliberations and where those bear on the jury's decision to convict, post-trial juror testimony is admissible to expose that bias to the court and to impeach the verdict. There was quite a bit of discussion in Peña Rodriguez as to whether it is an opinion that should be viewed in isolation simply aimed at combating racial animus, or if it's instead a foundational first step for other animus-combating exceptions to Rule 606B. And your note's kind of central premise is that the Supreme Court has actually been at this juncture before, especially when assessing whether race-based protections should be extended to combat gender animus. So, Katie, what historical precedent do we have at this juncture? So there's two important pieces of the historical precedent that my note looks at. And first, I looked at the historic societal evolution between race-based protections and rights, and then the extension of those rights and those protections to gender-based protections and rights. So I looked at really the last 75 years or so of African-Americans' fights for suffrage, fights for property rights, um, the integration of schools, the Jim Crow era, the boycotts, the marches, the sit-ins, things like that that were mirrored within years by the women's rights movements. And so we see the identification of biases in different areas of our society and then the extension of rights to those marginalized groups to really remedy those inconsistencies and the rights that they have. And so I looked at that as sort of a model of the way in which our country is moving. And then I looked at the Supreme Court decisions, really two decisions. So Batson versus Kentucky and JEB versus Alabama that deal with the peremptory challenge exceptions. So in Batson versus Kentucky, the Supreme Court recognizes that Parties cannot make peremptory challenges or strike potential jurors solely based on their race. And then years later, we see that extended to gender-based protections in JEB versus Alabama, in which the Supreme Court simply said that you can't strike potential jurors based on their gender alone. Great. So if your argument is accepted and that Peña Rodriguez should be extended to also combat gender animus, Do you think that Peña Rodriguez should also be expanded beyond racial and gender-based animus to capture deliberative animus against other protected classes? So this is a question that I grappled with from the beginning. And originally when I was starting writing, I wanted to argue that Peña Rodriguez should be expanded to all protected classes because I think there's some of the same historical precedent that would support that. But I don't think there's as much precedent to support it as the natural step from race to gender. And I think the first step, we know that courts move in small steps, especially the Supreme Court. I think the first natural step is to expand to gender because we see the protection of race to gender at the outset of criminal trials with the peremptory challenge exceptions. So the natural protection or natural evolution would be to protect against racial animus and then gender animus at the back end of criminal trials. 
And so we saw the rejection of Charles Rhines's petition against express statements of anti-gay bias in jury deliberations this spring from the United States Supreme Court. And I think that if a case came up about gender, that we would have a different result. But I think that the first natural step is gender. But that's not to say that it shouldn't extend to other protected classes. So playing devil's advocate here, I think a lot of opponents might say that expanding Peña-Rodriguez comes at a cost. The more exceptions to Rule 606B, the less shielded jury deliberations will be from further scrutiny after a trial. So do you think that the jury system in its current form can survive more exceptions to the no impeachment rule? That is to say, do you at all buy the argument from opponents, kind of the slippery slope argument, against opening up jury deliberations? I definitely don't buy it. I think that it's totally unfounded when you're looking at the doctrine. And when you think about the hundreds of years that we see this uncertainty in our history from the time that the Mansfield rule came from England to the 2017 Pena Rodriguez decision, we see courts really protecting that juror's black box in their deliberations. And it's clear that courts want to preserve the secrecy of deliberations. It's clear that courts want to preserve the finality of jurors' decisions. And so I think that will always be given heavy weight. Also, we've seen this concern when JEB expanded Batson. In Justice Scalia's dissent, he was worried about the slippery slope, and he said there would be no way to stop this expansion. And we really haven't seen that in the peremptory challenge realm. And in the same way, Justice Alito, in his dissent of the Pena Rodriguez decision in 2017, expressed the basically same language recognizing a possible slippery slope. But it really is unfounded, and even if there was the sort of expansion that they seem to be worried about, it would take years and years and years, as we saw leading up to the Pena Rodriguez decision. Last question, Katie. What's next for the literature? If you had to guess, what type of paper would shed additional insight on this particular issue? So I think in true Supreme Court fashion, they left a lot of discretion to the trial courts after the Pena Rodriguez decision for trial courts to determine what exactly has to happen in deliberations to meet that threshold to impeach the verdict. And so they basically made three requirements. So a juror must make statements that exhibit overt racial bias. Those statements have to cast serious doubt on the fairness and impartiality of the trial. And then that racial animus actually has to be a significant motivating factor in the decision to convict. And so the rest of that opinion basically leaves sole discretion to the trial courts, which is great. But I think that there's going to be an instance of a lot of uncertainty and a lot of differences between state courts and federal courts in different circuits, like we saw before Pena Rodriguez, because no one's really sure what type of tests, what type of factors, if it should be a balancing test, what type of facts are important. And I think there could be literature about that sort of advising trial courts on what should happen or not happen to either meet or not meet that threshold. Well, Katie, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. In the two years since Peña Rodriguez was issued, judges, practitioners, and scholars alike have wrestled with the implications of the foundational decision. To be sure, 
Justice Kennedy's majority opinion insists that Peña Rodriguez's exception to Rule 606B is a narrow carve-out, a discreet recognition that, quote, racial bias implicates unique historical, constitutional, and institutional concerns, and therefore racial bias alone is the intolerable ill in the deliberation room. But commentators have nearly universally questioned the normative desirability of limiting Peña Rodriguez's protections to racial animus. Should not gender-based animus, religious-based animus, or animus based on sexual orientation also be subject to exposure? That is, doesn't the necessity of rooting out these biases in the deliberation room also outweigh the finality and protectionary interests that drive the no-impeachment rule. The weight of recent scholarship would certainly suggest as much, as it is firmly in favor of expanding Peña Rodriguez. In addition to Katie's excellent article, for example, recent highly recommended papers from Jason Koffler in the Columbia Law Review, from Jared Gonzalez in the St. Louis University Law Journal, and Fraser Holmes in the Texas Law Review, have all argued that Peña Rodriguez can and should be expanded. Interestingly, as yet, no one article defends the current post-Peña status quo. So, given the near unanimity of the commentary and, as Katie points out in her paper, historical precedent, is the expansion of Peña Rodriguez all but inevitable? Is it truly the case that the decision is simply a narrow carve-out, a recognition by the majority that, quote, racial bias in the justice system must be addressed? Or, like Batson before it, does it represent yet another inflection point in history, a critical juncture spurred on by the waning legitimacy, indeed the intolerability, of adjudication tainted by bias and animus. Robert Weisberg at Stanford Law School has perhaps provided what I believe is the most incisive commentary on our current crossroads. In light of all the normative arguments favoring the expansion of Peña Rodriguez, if, quote, the court ultimately wants to draw the line at race. It will be saying that because racial prejudice is the defining tragedy of American history, it demands special recognition. And if that special recognition requires some, shall we say, flexibility in constitutional reasoning, so be it. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.